I invite you to turn your Bibles now to the last two verses of 1 Timothy. We're going to finish this book up tonight by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. And so I'm going to read those two verses for us. But before I do, I remind you as ever, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Beloved of God, the word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so let's ask the Lord now to use his word to that end in our midst this evening. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you, for your word is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And so we ask, Lord, that you would now teach us from your word, for it is our heritage forever and the joy of our hearts. Incline our hearts, we ask this evening, to perform your law forever, even to the end. Uphold us, we pray according to your promise that we may live and let us not be put to shame in you who are our hope. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. Well, in these two closing verses that close out the book, Paul here gives Timothy three commands that he is to obey. And it's interesting to me because he goes back in the closing of his letter, to where he actually began his letter. You recall that in chapter 1, Paul is talking to Timothy about how he needs to wage the good warfare. And he left him there in Ephesus to silence the false teachers and remove some of these bad elders and appoint other elders. And so he's returning now to this topic of making sure that Timothy does not fall prey to the lies of these false teachers. This is a theme that we have seen pop up again and again all throughout the book. And in closing, this is so important for Paul to press home for Timothy, that as he leads this church in Ephesus, in rightly thinking about who they are as the church and how they ought to engage in the public worship of God, that Timothy needs to be aware to not stray, stray from the faith. And so we need to hear this warning as well in closing, as we close out this letter, and then next week we'll jump into 2 Timothy. And so we're going to look at the three commands that Paul not just gives to Timothy and not just to the church in Ephesus, but also to us, brothers and sisters. And here are the three commands. First of all, he says that we are to guard the gospel. We'll see that in the first half of verse 20. We are to guard the gospel. We've been tasked by the Lord to do that. Second of all, we'll see that we are to avoid godless babbling. We're to avoid it. We'll see that in the second half of verse 20 and in the first half of verse 21. Don't even engage with it. Just leave it alone. Avoid it. Stay away from it because it's a waste of your time. And then thirdly, finally, we'll see that we're commanded to know that God is with us as his people. And we'll see that in the very last little section of verse 21, the second half there, that if we're going to do what God has called us to do as the church, 
we must know that he is graciously with us. We are his people and he is our God. And so again, sovereign grace, these commands are not just for Timothy. They're not just for Ephesus, they're for us as well. So may the spirit give us ears to hear what he's saying to us this evening. Let's look first then at how we are called, tasked by the Lord to guard the gospel. Look at verse 20 with me. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Now we see right out of the gate in this verse here that Paul is addressing Timothy affectionately. He's saying, O Timothy, and I don't know if I'm the only weird one in the room. I probably am. I should just assume that. But I often refer to my children not as Timothy because their names are Charlotte and Benjamin. But I say, O Charlotte or O Benjamin. And again, I'm probably the only person that does that. But it's a sign of affection. I love them so much. It's just spilling out of me. I address them. I love them. It's a, a way for me to show affection to them. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here with Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I hope you know how much I love you, how much I care about you, how affectionate I am for you. We already know throughout the rest of the letter this kind of affection. You remember in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2, he calls him my true child in the faith. He sees him as a son to him. Or he says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul tells the Philippians, I have no one else like Timothy who loves the Lord and who cares genuinely for you. And so Paul is showing here, he's displaying to Timothy, I love you, I care for you. And this is a little bit of speculation, but I can't help but wonder, and some commentators have mentioned this, if in closing, Paul, having dictated most of this letter to a scribe to write down, now actually picks up the pen himself. Timothy would know Paul's handwriting and actually writes in his own hand these final two verses. And I'm sure if Timothy saw that, he would recognize it, and it would have been a display, again, of Paul's affection. But here's the thing. As much as Paul loves Timothy, he loves something and someone even more, doesn't he? He loves Christ even more than he loves Timothy. He loves the gospel even more than he loves Timothy. And that's why he goes on to say, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And Paul is in blood earnest here. He's saying, we're not playing games. We're not playing church. God has entrusted to us the gospel to guard it. And so he's saying, you must do this, Timothy, by his grace. And what is it that has been entrusted to him? It's the exact same thing that was entrusted to Paul. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.11, he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul understood the weight of having this deposit entrusted to him because it was entrusted to him as well, not just Timothy. He says, we'll see this when we jump into 2 Timothy, but in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul writes, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so Paul knows the weight of this. And yet he says, this is what we've been called to. We didn't sign up for it. We've been called by God to this. 
And it's such an important command that Paul brings it up again in his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.14, saying, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then in that same letter, he commands Timothy then to do what? To entrust that same gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we're seeing this lineage that's been entrusted to Paul by Christ. Paul then entrusted to Timothy, and Timothy is then to entrust it to other faithful men that Christ raises up as elders or deacons or gospel ministers to serve over the church. And that's the calling, is to guard the good deposit. And this language of deposit is actually really fascinating historically. Because this is long before the times of safe deposit boxes. I don't know, do people, I'm sure people still use safe deposit boxes now. I don't know if any of you in here have one. But it wasn't like you'd go to a bank and they'd have all these safe deposit boxes in a safe and you could put your things in there and then you go on a trip and you don't have to worry about it. No, in the ancient world, what you did is you deposited your valuables when you were going to go away to someone who then was, had a fiduciary responsibility to take care of it. There was a legal responsibility that they had to make sure that your prized possessions, whatever those may be, were taken care of and they didn't do whatever they wanted with it. No, they carried out the wishes of the person that actually owned those possessions. And so that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy here. He's saying, God has entrusted this to you. And this is to be taken very, very seriously. By the way, this idea of depositing is actually in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 2 and 4. And there's actually provisions in the law for those who sin when they're actually entrusted with a deposit. And so Paul is saying, that's not to be true of you, Timothy. Timothy, this is not something that ultimately belongs to you the gospel. No, it belongs to the Lord. And he's entrusted it to you to protect. You don't get to do with it what you want. You are to obey the command of your master, to whom you belong and to whom this gospel belongs. And so you are to guard it and protect it and proclaim it and treasure it. It's fascinating as I was reading multiple commentaries about this passage, there's a citation from an early church father named Leo the Great that came up again and again and again. He was a bishop in the fifth century and he's talking about this idea of this deposit and I updated the language just a little bit so that there wouldn't be these and thous and hasts and all that stuff but he asked the question what is meant by the deposit? He's talking about this. He's saying what does it mean by the deposit? And here's his answer. That which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you. That which you have received, not that which you have devised. A thing not of wit, but of learning. Not something you came up with, but something that was actually taught to you. Not of private assumption, but of public tradition. A thing brought to you, not brought forth of you, wherein you must not be an author, but a keeper, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. So do you get the point? 
What Paul is telling Timothy is, listen, this gospel is not from you and through you and to you, Timothy. It is from and through and to God himself. And so you are to receive it and you are to guard it and care for it. It's glorious that even in a little letter this short, we actually see the gospel come up again and again and presented to the church through Paul as he writes to Timothy in the Ephesian church. So, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, we see that Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. That's the deposit that's been entrusted to Timothy. Or what about 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6? We read, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's the gospel. That's the deposit. Or more recently, we remember 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, where Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the deposit that has been entrusted to us, Church of the Living God. And that's humbling, isn't it? It's a humbling reality that this treasure of the gospel, as Paul says elsewhere, is entrusted to earthen vessels like us. And so if we reflect on that task, (laughs) what we've been given to do to guard the gospel, boy, that sounds pretty overwhelming, doesn't it? Especially in light of the great treasure that the gospel is, and then also in light of the fact that we know how weak and fallen we are. How susceptible we are to chicken out. And so when that realization dawns on us, both the greatness of the task and our own ineptitude in and of ourselves, what we need to do is we need to remind ourselves of how Paul encourages the church in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6 to think about this. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. That's our confidence as the church. It's not in ourselves. It's in Christ. And more specifically, not just us as the church, that's our confidence, but as gospel ministers. That's our confidence, that we don't have sufficiency in and of ourselves, but Christ makes us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. And so that's the only way that we'll be able to face this incredible calling to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to us. So now that we've looked at the command that we are to guard the gospel, let's look secondly at how we are commanded to avoid godless babbling. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me again. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now the contrast that Paul is distinguishing between what's been entrusted to him 
and this irreverent babble is the difference between what God has taught and what God has revealed and the mere teachings of man. It kind of goes back to that distinction that Leo the Great made. This is not something that has come from you, that has come from man. It's something that God has revealed. And so that is what you are to proclaim. That is what you are to make center for the church. You are not to dabble in this irreverent babble. (laughs) Now I'm making it rhyme. Sorry, that was unintentional. And this isn't the first time that Paul has brought this up to Timothy, this idea of irreverent babble. You remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he says certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. In other words, rather than meditating and reflecting and holding fast to the revealed word of God, they're getting tripped up in their own thoughts and their own questions and their own speculations. And Paul says this is so dangerous. And so he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is so important that he'll also avoid Timothy again against this godless babbling in 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And so it's so important that Timothy and the church don't give in to this profane babbling because notice what Paul says is at stake. He tells us in verse 21, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. In other words, some listeners hear this false teaching and they fall away from the faith. They no longer profess the faith that they once did. And Paul mentions folks like this all throughout the letter to Timothy, doesn't he? This first letter. People like Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Or like those who follow the false teachers and depart from the faith in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Or what about the young widows? You remember Paul says they should get married because if they stay single, there's going to be this massive temptation for them to be idle. And Paul says some of them have given themselves up to that in 1 Timothy 5.15, and they've strayed after Satan. Or what about those who loved money and desired it so that they wandered away from the faith in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10? So Paul says this is what's at stake, Timothy. You've got to avoid this godless babbling because some will believe it, profess it, commit themselves to it, and they will swerve away from the faith. And yet here's the thing, brothers and sisters. This is true for us as well. We're to avoid godless babbling. And yet it's hard for us at times to avoid it, isn't it? It's tempting for us to want to engage when we hear the ridiculousness in the world, the foolishness of those who oppose the gospel, who set up false gospels, we want to engage with them. And here's the thing. There are times for us to engage, aren't there? There are times when we are to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We know that in another place in Paul's letters to the pastoral epistles in Titus 1 verse 9, we know that The elders are called by God to not just teach the whole counsel of God, but then also refute those who contradict. And so there are times for the church doesn't just have affirmations. She also has denials. The world doesn't like that. The world just says, just say all the things you affirm. Don't say the things that you deny. And yet Paul says, you've got to do this because it makes the lines 
so clear. So there are times to engage. But here's the thing. There are also times when those who foolishly, sinfully want to endlessly engage in debate that goes nowhere, you're just to end that engagement with them. Because they just want to continue to set themselves up as teachers of the truth, even after they've been shown their error. And still, they want to set themselves up as teachers and continue to spread so-called knowledge. In the immediate context, he's talking about the Gnostics here, but this applies to us as well. And so we're to completely avoid them at that point. Why? Because when we engage, we potentially communicate to other Christians, people in the church, that this is actually something worth your time. That this is actually something that you should take seriously, even after they've been refuted and warned. In other words, we don't want those in the church to think that they should be listening to false teachers. And so for the protection and purity of the church, they are to be avoided. These are the kind of situations where Jesus tells us to not cast our pearls before swine in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, or where the Proverbs tell us to not answer a fool according to his folly. Now again, there are times you do answer the fool according to his folly, but then there's times that you don't. And so by God's grace, may he grant us as the church the love and discernment and courage to know when to respond to false teachers, as this church has, most recently with the influencers, and, and that was absolutely what we should have done, and then when to avoid them altogether after they've been warned and they refuse to listen and to receive sound doctrine and repent in light of the lies that they have believed and taught. So Paul says to Timothy, we are to guard the gospel, we are to avoid godless babbling, and then thirdly, finally, we see that we are commanded by God to know that God is with us. And what an appropriate place for us to end this letter. What an appropriate place for Paul to end this letter to Timothy. Because think of all that Paul has called Timothy to do on apostolic authority. God, through the apostle Paul, has made so clear for Timothy, this is how the church is to be the church as it will. This is how the church is to organize itself under the headship of Christ. This is how you're to worship me publicly together. And so who is fit for these things? Well, only those who know that God is actually with them. And so it's fascinating to me that this doxology, it's the same mentality as the greeting back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how he starts his letter to Timothy. And then notice that he ends it saying, grace be with you. And this isn't Paul saying, hey, I hope that God is graciously with you. Hey, I hope grace and mercy and peace will be with you. I pray that that's the case. No, this is an announcement. Grace and mercy and peace are yours because God has given them to you in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this isn't some well-wishing. This is a declaration that you are God's people and God is your God. And I love that this isn't just true for Timothy. This is true for the entire church because in verse 21, that grace be with you is in the plural. So this is for the entire church. 
And so this is a pillow that you can <laughs> rest your head on. That in light of all of these commands, what we're to do and who we're to be as the church, that we can know that we'll do this because God is with us. I mean, think about just that first command, guard the gospel. That's what God has called us to as the church, and specifically in the capacity that we have as gospel ministers and elders who oversee in the church. We're called to do that. What hope can we have that we would be able to do that in and of ourselves? And that you as Christ's church would also be on guard to guard the gospel. If it was completely up to us, brothers and sisters, we would just have reason to despair. Because just look at our history. I mean, go back to Adam and Eve. Adam did not guard what was entrusted to him, did he? He let the serpent sneak into the garden and deceive, lie to his wife. He should have been on guard and driven that unclean animal out of the presence of God and his people, and yet he failed. And instead, he actually listened to the false teacher, the original liar, Satan himself. And so as a result, and as our representative, he took all of us into the morass of fallenness by taking the fruit and eating of it so that we're now in this situation. So our federal head didn't do a very good job guarding what God had entrusted to him, did he? Or think of Israel. How did they do? They do a very good job guarding what God entrusted to them? No. They failed spectacularly, miserably. Distrusting God, wanting to set up false gods for them to worship instead. And so they incurred the punishment of God. And we can look at other examples in the New Testament. What about Peter? He doesn't guard the gospel. Paul has to rebuke him. We see that in the New Testament. And so then when we come to us, knowing that we come from a long line of sinners who have failed to guard the good deposit, when we look at just ourselves, we think, okay, so am I going to fail at this as well? If left to our own devices, we would brothers and sisters. But here's the good news. We're not left to our own devices. And here's also the good news. This is exactly why Jesus had to come. Because he perfectly guarded what God had entrusted to him. He did all his father's holy will. John 6, 38. Doesn't Jesus say that? All that you've given me to do, Father, I have done your will. And he doesn't lose one of whom the father gave him. John 18, Verse 9, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He lived the perfect life that we failed to. And he did that in our place so that we are forgiven our sins, because he paid that penalty on the cross, and we're clothed in his righteousness. And so again, our confidence is that God will use us as his church, even though we are still sinful, to guard the good deposit. But that confidence is not from us. It's from Christ. I mean, what are his final words to us? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our confidence is that he is with us. Grace be with you. God is with us. 
Christ by sending the Holy Spirit. And so our confidence is that he will keep us by his grace as we strive to guard the gospel. And because we know God is with us in Christ, we can know that we will not be ashamed. As Paul says, for we know whom we have believed and we are convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to us as the church. In other words, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we will guard the good deposit by God's grace because our confidence is ultimately in this promise, church of the living God. It's not in anything in us. It's because of this promise. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.